You're watching The Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Over the past 40 years, our courts have been committed to diversity and inclusion. They committed to this effort in order to live up to the ideals of fairness and equality and to build public trust and confidence. While there are many improvements that can be pointed to, there is still much work to be done. The lessons learned from diversity and inclusion practices point to benefits beyond just furthering the institutional values of fairness, equity, impartiality, trust, and accountability. They also improve decision-making, innovation, resiliency, responsiveness, employee engagement, and the delivery of services. Now, institutions like courts today are challenged by the spread of the global pandemic, by the demand for more access, by the desire for more equitable outcomes, and the erosion of public trust and confidence in government. Diversity and inclusion should be at the forefront to harness solutions and to turn challenges into opportunity. What can we do to strengthen our institutional values and apply concrete diversity and inclusion practices for the problems that we face today? And what advice can we give to court administrators and clerks of court around the country who are dealing with these problems on a daily basis? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This is the first of a two-part episode on courts and their commitment to diversity and inclusion. I'm joined today by my co-host, Zanelle Brown, Executive Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan. Our panelists today include Marcia M. Anderson, recently retired as Clerk of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of Wisconsin. Hector Gonzalez is the Court Executive Officer for the Superior Court in Tuolumne County, California. Norman Meyer, retired after serving 38 years as the Court Administrator in both federal and state systems. Most recently, he was the clerk of the United States Bankruptcy Court in the District of New Mexico. And Jose Octavio Guion, retired after serving for 42 years as the court executive officer and jury commissioner in the superior courts of Sonoma, Napa, Riverside, and Imperial Counties, California. Thanks to all of you for joining today's video podcast. Hector, let me start with you. In recent years, bias against inclusion seems to have mutated from implicit to explicit. For example, there are prevalent beliefs that Muslims are trying to replace the rule of law with Sharia law, and there is overt opposition to the LGBTQ plus community, such as clerks refusing to issue marriage licenses. Do you sense that perspectives about bias are becoming more explicit? And if so, what can be done to counter that bias? I was just going to say that I do believe that it's it really hasn't changed. I think bias has always been there, uh, whether it be, it's implicit or explicit. I think now we have a greater propensity now for people to display their bias and the shame uh, or the ability to consider it to be un- unacceptable. Uh, those breaks seem to be off quite a bit. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, both in, in our culture and our, in our politics. And that is the challenge I think we have as uh, trying to build diversity and inclusion when you get a counter message coming from sometimes the highest levels of our government uh, from what you would like to do. And I am familiar somewhat with that, the experience of that clerk refusing to do a marriage license. That was, I believe, in uh, either Kentucky or Tennessee. 
where uh, a county clerk refused to accept or process a marriage license of a gay uh, couple. And I think one of the things that we can do to counter, unfortunately, the I think the license that's being given for those of us who have positions of authority and clerks, those who work in governmental agencies, have a lot of power and authority over people. And one of the points I take uh, and use a good deal of resources on is to establish the core values. I think we've talked about how a core value of inclusion and diversity has to be established right away. And I do that from the very beginning by personally doing an orientation with every staff where I go over the values of diversity, inclusion, and anti-discrimination, which are already stated in our code of ethics for uh, California court employees. I have them right here. I All I do is give the real world explanation of statements that are pretty abstract, like provide impartial, even-handed treatment to all persons. You know, what does that mean? Well, that means if the attorney with a three-piece suit walks up to the counter and you've got a farm worker who just came from uh, working in the fields, the level of treatment and the welcoming or the assistance you provide should be equal. And there shouldn't be any any distinction made between those individuals because that then reflects on on our court's willingness both externally and internally to value the diversity in, in terms of our customers. Because I see diversity being in two ways. It's not only internal to ourselves, but it's the diversity that comes to our counter, the diversity comes into our courtroom, and the reflection that we are supposed to have in our treatment and who we hire and who is there to provide the assistance to reflect the community, to value that community, and not to ever show a lack of what I would call the customer inclusion. Uh, so I do think that's the challenge, and I think it takes a lot of time and resources to establish those core values with employees from the very beginning, because I think as governmental employers, we often have people who are new to government, have, particularly at entry-level positions and have never had that kind of a value established in terms of customer service based on diversity and inclusion because in many times they, they come from a private sector setting. Uh, they seem to believe that they have more license, if, you know, no, shoe, no, no shoes, no service kind of mentality that they can take that uh, this feeling of distinction and discrimination and make, uh, and make a decision not to provide assistance or to provide service. So for me, that's what I consider the strategy that I use to counter that. Marsha, what is your take? I agree with Hector's approach to talking to staff from the very first day and making sure that they understand the court's values. Another thing that I think is important to remember, too, is a lot of people's biases are one founded on misinformation and the other maybe on fear. And so I think it's important to address the fear and the misinformation through court training, through modeling um, certain behaviors yourself, and sometimes having those difficult discussions. One thing that happened to me is when I was hired for clerk of court, for this court, the judges made it very clear to me that they were fairly certain my staff in the northern part of the state had never actually talked to an African-American person. So talking to them, getting them comfortable, and answering, and, and actually, um, initiating conversations was a way I did some educating and informing. And so there's a way to do that that rests not in someone's face. It's not a formal training, but it certainly is a way to 
dispel the myths and notions that people may have about other people. Diversity requires that organization have a myriad of perspectives represented, race, ethnicity, gender, gender orientation, education, age, religion, and physical and mental abilities. The recruitment, hiring, retention, and promotion of diverse candidates are a top priority for many courts. Norman, how do you satisfy that priority and avoid the risk of creating diversity slots that must be filled by hiring and promoting specific types of individuals? I think in the first place, you do a good job of having sound, comprehensive HR practices for recruitment and selection in place uh, from the get-go. And if you do that, and you've recruited a diverse set of uh, staff members, you don't need to have uh, diversity slots and quotas. I wrote a lot of this um, in the blog post that I did in, in July on the Vantage Point uh, blog post on Court Leader. And, and there's some key actions that you really need to do I think, to make sure that you do have the kind of recruitment and selection process so that you do end up with a diverse workforce. These are things like you, know, you develop your sources of qualified applicants, and that's something that a lot of people don't do. You need to get out in the community and say, okay, what is my labor market? And if there isn't a sufficient number of qualified applicants in a certain group uh, that you want to recruit for to represent your community, well, you get out there and partner with your community college, you get with your civil rights organizations, with the churches or whatever groups, and to say, hey, I need to get qualified applicants. How can we get from here to there? We do mentorship, do internships, do whatever to try to do outreach to the community to develop a, a qualified applicant pool. And that's something that a lot of us think to pay very little attention to. And then we just wait for people to come to our door and hope we get a diverse set of applicants. But I think you need to be proactive. So that's the first thing. Then you need to have appropriate qualification standards that match the job and don't screen people out who are in unnecessarily, such as does this job really require a college degree? Does this job really require even a high school degree? Because if you put those things in there, you're probably screening out people from some of your more diverse uh, applicant pools. Make sure you're publicizing widely. Don't just put an ad in the Sunday in a newspaper. That's not going to cut it, not in this day and age. Uh, you need to get uh, your recruitment out to a diverse, wide audience. Use social media. Go back to the same stakeholder groups, the churches, the community college, uh, the civil rights groups, whatever. Make sure they know that there's an opening court and you are actively recruiting for people and you hope to get applicants from them. Make sure there's multiple ways to apply. Don't have it just be paper. Make sure you have an online process, that you accept facts, whatever it takes to get people to apply and make sure that you get those applications in. And then last, that you be fair and use selection process. And it gets back to what Hector was talking about earlier. You know, make sure that what you're doing is unbiased. There's so many steps in the recruitment process that bias can creep in. It's subtle, and there's so many different things you do to make sure that everybody involved in the selection process has been trained and is ready to make sure that your selection process doesn't screen people out. If you do all of those things, in my opinion, why would you need to have a quota? of a certain type of person, because you're going to get people who are qualified, you're going to hire them, and your workforce is going to represent the community. Jose, how do you think we guard against this problem? I totally agree with you, Norman, you know, uh, my brother from another mother. Uh, you know, we, we really agree. Uh, one of the areas that I, I agree 100% uh, with him is that recruitment should start early on for the vacancy. 
creating a pipeline, creating creating the attraction uh, of those uh, communities that are not represented in, in the court. So creating the interest, creating uh, the report in the community of individuals that will want to be uh, court employees. So I think reaching out and creating that relationship at the outset is very critical. The other one is, is, is this notion of, of selection. And it reminds me of, of uh, the early experiments that were done in the selection of uh, musicians for symphonies in the 1950s. And that very few women were selected. And then they started doing blind selections and they started playing behind the curtains. Then pretty soon they, they decided to muffle the sound of the heels entering the stage. And the outcome is that the, the inclusion and the quality of candidates and musicians are seen now that, you know, it, it's probably not dependent upon those implicit biases. But it first had to be understood that, you know, they wanted a diverse musician pool. And they wanted to have a selection not dependent upon individual characteristics in this case, female versus male. And so I think it's very powerful to start first with being anchored on principles of diversity, of fairness, equity. And, and once we do that, I think um, is being careful about the biases of what I call the nebulous fit that, you know, sometimes is who is at the table making that selection, making sure that we don't have the gatekeepers that are trying to find the fit in the organization, someone that will fit within the organization, within the culture. So being as diverse in that selection making process, critical. The other one is, is our uh, validation or, you know, what I call confirmation bias. And that is that, you know, we all have biases, solicit biases. And so, you know, making sure that we, we don't select someone with the right uh, degree from the right school because we attended that school. So the diversity of those selection decision makers is key. Thank you, Jose. And you mentioned the magical word inclusion. So let's switch the conversation there. Inclusion describes the qualitative experience of having employees and customers acknowledged, seen, heard, and valued. So Hector, how does your organization define inclusion, build a culture of inclusion, and measure the impact of inclusiveness? I think inclusion can take many forms, particularly when you look at both your internal customers, which is what I train my staff to consider each other, as we all serve one another internally in terms of providing assistance and services, and then our external customers, uh, those people who come and seek services from the court. Defining inclusion there is in terms of providing, I think, the, the sense of equal opportunity to both ha receive the service and the equal opportunity to be able to get the benefit of employment in terms of promotion and assignment and uh, opportunities that an employee would expect to receive without any regard to what their race, religion, ethnicity, or any other aspect of distinction. Again, that gets to our core values in, in remembering that what we want to reflect to our customers has to be, uh, the external customers, has to be reflected internally. So. Defining it that way and then 
that in itself builds a culture by taking the action that shows that you do more than just say the words. For example, one of the most important things I do is I not only go out to community-based organizations like Jose and, and Norman and mention when I need to and want something, I actually become a member of boards. When you serve on a board that is a community-based organization where they just need someone to help set up a table, someone to staff a location, as long as it doesn't cause any conflict of interest with my court, that to me is a powerful statement of a little bit of my time that I become the symbol of inclusion. Because those of us, Marsha mentioned that, when you yourself are the symbol of inclusion by being there and showing people that I'm able to be in this position and I'm able to bring those who merit and have the ability into my organization to get that same equal opportunity. That builds that culture and you also have to protect it. And what I mean is I've already in a new organization here had to do a number of investigations where I had bench officers as well as employees violating that culture and treating each other differently based on something that would be a point of bias. And that destroys inclusion. When you allow that to occur without taking action to immediately investigate, make a finding, and take action. So uh, building that culture means you have to defend it. Because if you don't, then people say, just a bunch of words, he can get away with saying that and nobody's going to stop him from doing it. So it doesn't mean anything when they say those those pretty words. And in terms of the measurement, obviously uh, the quantifiable measurements is in terms of what employees have you promoted, what employees have you hired in terms of their diversity backgrounds. I know one area that is a great point of, of measuring and in, for inclusion that I think we touched on is that and I think we know, that at least in California courts, the overwhelming majority of our clerical staff are women. And you see the disparity in terms of the court management and in the, and in the judges in terms of that lack of inclusion in those areas. And I think that's changing, but it's something that I think we, uh, we should ignore and that the inclusion also includes that category, particularly when you're a male and you want to define inclusion, you also have to remember to include that as an aspect of inclusion as your measure. Otherwise, you also lose credibility. Norman, what's your advice? Oh, that's really great. <laughs> what you're doing, Hector, uh, I second that. And uh, in my experience, uh, you know, build a culture of inclusion by really making it a routine part of everything you do. I mean, every act you do and every act every employee does minute by minute is part and parcel of creating that culture. And so this is both formal things that your employees are doing, like servicing a customer uh, or another employee within the court, but also informal. One thing that I tried to do um, when I was clerk of court was every day, frankly, roam around the office and engage employees informally about how things were going, both professionally and to the extent it was appropriate personally, and build that rapport and understanding of of their uh, situation and we could as an organization react to and help each other out. And also that's internal, but external, you mentioned customers, treating everybody the same as you positively engage them. They really create that culture of inclusion. And as far as measurements, Marsha may know about this one, but the federal center and the federal system uh, 
courts, if they want to, to do employee satisfaction surveys and engages uh, a survey that was created by the Gallup organization to survey staff about how satisfied they are with their jobs. And I'll tell you, when you get the results of that, it really reveals whether or not your staff thinks things are going well, whether or not they've been included, whether they're being ignored, you know, blah, 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 all those sorts of things that are important. And another great thing about it is that we did it like every other year for six years. And so I would get longitudinal data about how people thought we were doing in, in creating that culture of inclusion. So measurement, I think, is really important. You may think you're doing great, but there's probably an area where you could improve. Zanil, I, I would like to, Norman just sparked uh, a thought, a reflection. And one of the strategies I used to use with every orientation of new employees is to convey to them that justice starts at the counter with a smile, that the first impressions matter, therefore make your first impression matter. Kind of remind me of uh, Maya Angelou's, one of my favorite quotes, people will forget what you say, people will forget what you do, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And so the power of that human connection goes a long ways in setting that culture of inclusion, setting the culture that, that those little acts matter, matter in how we feel connected and be respected when we're trying to seek out justice, seek out services. So I, you know, I, I agree with Hector and Norman that, that that's at the core of inculcating the notion that uh, our jobs do matter. You know, there's not just filing papers, but, you know, we have a profound impact on the lives of people that come to rely on us. And how wonderful, how powerful that is. But that powerful position of stewardship also requires accountability and, and inclusion. So I'm being inclusive. Anything you want to add to that, Marcia? I have often tried to remind employees that when they answer the phone, that is also a, a way you can let people know that you are welcoming and so the court is interested in supporting them. Because I had an employee once who answered the phone when I called in and barked at me. And I, as soon as I said to her, you know, this is Marcia. Oh, hi. And I said, you should have answered the phone that way in the first place. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be just because it's me. So we, we had a lot of conversations about how customer service, I agree with Jose, you got to talk with a smile in your voice because people react to that. And especially nowadays when we're doing things so remotely, it's important. Thank you. So Marcia, stick with me on this question. One survey report says that six out of 10 courts are located in smaller towns. Wisconsin's a good example with only a few metropolitan areas that offer diverse populations and the rest small and drawn on a rural population. What, what advice do you have for court administrators and clerks of court to foster diversity and inclusion in smaller towns? That's a, a great question and one that I've, I've given a lot of thought to in the last couple of years, especially since I live here in Wisconsin, which as you pointed out, it's got a, large, a lot of rural areas with, with small towns. A lot of court jobs over time have changed and people's patterns and habits have changed. People have gotten more comfortable with technology and doing things online. So they're not going to take you know, their lunch hour and run to the court sometimes because they can sometimes transact the business online. So I think we have to think about that as an opportunity for courts that are smaller to create a more diverse workplace by expanding their applicant pool and opening it up in terms of certain jobs 
to people who may live out there, live outside of their commuting area, because that can give you a, a richer applicant pool. It's not to say that you're not interested in hiring people from your town, but they may not have that particular skill set, especially since, you know, you're going to, you may need an IT, a person with a really like IT skills who will be caught up part of their job title will still be customer service, but you may need that person and that person may live 80 or a hundred miles away and you can still communicate with them. They can still attend staff meetings by using tools like this. They can still be a part of your office. And for a lot of young people, they are more comfortable with that kind of interaction. And we know that in a lot of these small towns, they're having a, a, a population drain. Younger people are not staying. And so their applicant pool is by definition getting smaller because young people are leaving these smaller towns and going to larger cities and, and medium-sized uh, locations. So I think this is an opportunity. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where you can seize on it and help your court and your community become more diverse in terms of people that work for your office. But again, also expand your applicant pool and the talents that you can bring into your court. What are your thoughts, Jose? I think Hector touched on it, and uh, especially for the small communities, you know, that uh, your involvement, your participation in establishing and nurturing relationships uh, is so key. So key to establishing the rapport, establishing the level of trust. Because those shifts in, in you know, demographics or, or technology, you know, have an impact in, in community values, community norms. And when you're making those changes, you need to have a, a relationship of trust. You need to also understand where your applicants are coming from. In helping the transition, helping those changes uh, is key. And you need to do it when, you know, you're not in a crisis, that you want to have that report, you want to have that relationship already in place so that when those changes are necessary, uh, they will be more palatable. Now, understanding also that, you know, we need to understand what the interests uh, of our community are. You know, what are the fears? You know, what are the challenges? And helping, uh, you know, everyone uh, through our own actions, through our own actions of inclusion, our own actions of, of understanding. Uh, because, you know, my experience as well, I've worked in small courts and, you know, lessons learned is one of the things that I, I didn't realize is I, I underestimated how difficult certain changes of diversity and inclusion were to a community that I just assumed that everyone viewed the world the way I did. You have to find out that I was touching a, a very difficult uh, area of tension for people because they were feeling that the status quo was being changed. Someone moved the cheese for them and they were not prepared to, to go the other way. So uh, I think that seizing the opportunities of the change but recognizing the change is difficult but you establishing that report in the community, especially in small communities, I think goes a long ways in, in, in making, in leading that transition, if you will. As we close out this podcast, what advice do you have for other court administrators and clerks of court as they grapple with their commitment to diversity and inclusion in their court? Norman? My advice to court, other court administrators grappling with all this is 
you got to educate yourself, become knowledgeable about the subject and it's all about to acknowledge issues, to honor the fact that these are valid issues and valid concerns. And, and, and once you've done those things, then you need to commit to improve and, t- and act and actually act. Don't just sit back and watch the parade. You may, yeah, you, you may be educated. You may acknowledge it and then say, well, that's somebody else's problem or, you know, the, you know let Zanel handle that. You know, I, I'm just going to sit back and know that this is not an easy process dealing with diversity, inclusion and, and systemic racism and such. It's going to take time to undo, you know, hundreds of years of really bad history uh, in the United States in particular that we are still and still on the march. We're still on that long march towards uh, that good ending um, uh, where, the, where you and the public will will benefit from a truly diverse and truly inclusive environment. Jose? Shepherding uh, this, um, this practices, you know, or, or being the uh, individual uh, leader to shepherd uh, some of that. Um, you know, the advice that I would have is, is as Norman indicated is educate yourself on, on you know, that, that competency of knowledge is critical in recognizing the bias, whether it be implicit or explicit, uh, you know, that we all carry some of that because that, that is part of our human, human condition based on cultural experiences. And there are certain strategies that you can use to, to overcome some of that. Some of that is being anchored on, on values. So I think two practices or two emphases that should be given, if I were to do it all over again, is that pay more attention to the notion of not only knowledge, but also the other components, the personal well-being. Um, making sure that physically I'm eating right, physically I'm doing certain things, to weather the long journey. If this is not something that is going to happen overnight, this is not a project in any state. It is a process that is ongoing. It's never going to be perfect, but you always want progress. The third component is knowledge, the, the physical well-being, but also the spiritual. If I were to do it all over again, I would recognize it. You know, and I don't want to sound like this is a religion component, but spiritual component, however you find mindfulness, introspection into yourself, whether it be going for a walk, whether it be art, whatever it is, cultivate that. We as individuals have to do that in order to have an impact in the change and in in others and how they see us and how we can encourage, inspire others to be embracing those changes. So I think for me, two things that I would do if I were doing it all over again is, you know, lean more into the transformational leadership, the stewardship leadership, transformation meaning, you know, the change is, is really preparing everyone to follow you in the midst of all this change, this rapid existential change, and then stewardship knowing that it's not about your ego, it's not about you, but it's about service to others. And above all, I would say, enjoy the ride. You know, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride as you uh, have the little wins and all that. 
I think uh, one of the regrets I had was that I was so eager to have all these milestones that I forgot to smell the roses uh, along the way. So my advice is um, savor the little wins and uh, enjoy the ride. Marcia? You know, I, I agree with Norm's comments about ed- educating yourself as a, as a court leader. Um, and I would encourage, you know, particularly around the issue of diversity and inclusion, today's court leaders to consider convening perhaps a roundtable with some of the organizations in your community, your the Latinx organizations, the social justice organizations, um, you know, the ones you're very familiar with, like the Urban League or the NAACP. One, you could use that as an opportunity for them to get to know you. But two, for many of them, that would be their uh, the best way to educate them about what the courts are and do, and also to let them know you're interested in having a diverse staff. So I can't tell you how many times here in Madison we've sent um, notices for our vacancies to these very same organizations, and I got nobody applied. And I actually called up one or two people and said, what happened? Did you just throw them in the circular file? For those of you who are younger than all of us, that's a wastebasket. I said, what happens? And so they said, well, some people are afraid of the courts. They don't, they think that, you know, you're, you're, it's too hard. You know, they, you have to be really, really smart to work there. Not that you don't want that, you won't want smart people, but they have thought that they thought the bar was so high, they didn't even apply. So I think it would be good to cultivate those relationships to educate and inform the communities of color and others. I would reach out to veterans organizations as well. I would include them in that um, and then groups of, for those who are differently able because you know, we're not asking people to lift 50 pounds in our courts. They're mostly sitting in a chair or maybe standing at a counter occasionally helping the public. Lots of people can do those jobs. I have no doubt that those organizations I just identified could provide you with a very good applicant pool. You would see maybe perhaps your retention go up because these are good jobs. You know, I think the tendency is to try to hire recent college graduates, but we know this is a group of people who job hop. I think you, you, you kill yourself when you do, when you restrict your, your, um, your applicant pool to those kinds of folks and you, you kill your retention. You want people to stay, at least I did, for as long as possible. And so again, reach out to different groups, educate and inform them, and then develop those relationships and nurture them and see what happens. Hector? I guess I'll focus more on the uh, personal individual <laughs> recommendation I'd have, which is, to model and to be more conscious uh, as leaders, particularly at the head clerk of the court or CEO level of our own implicit biases. I mean, we all do probably as best we can, whatever biases that we have, we are keeping them under control because I had mentioned before that whatever you do in your efforts and strategies and actions and diversity uh, and inclusion, if you don't re- reflect and model that in what you do, then everything is devalued and probably it's not going to be very effective. And I often have to deal with uh, managers and supervisors who have frequently told me, oh, I don't see color. They're African-American. I didn't even notice. And I go, really? Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Because that very statement uh, in itself has some seed of concern uh, that we need to talk about. And and then I bring my own point of we all, as I think Jose said, we all have our prejudices, our biases, our points of distinction that we make 
that we apply to throughout the you know throughout everyone we meet. Being aware of that and the strategies, like you said, Jose, to deal with that, but to be honest and say that you know we all can be the I think the victims of our own demons if we don't realize they're there, and to make sure that we are very honest with our staff. Not to you know we're not going to say well. I don't, I don't like Asian people. I mean, I don't mean that. I just mean that we don't try to give the false denial of no, of having no possible sense of an implicit bias. There has to be a statement of, I, I think that everyone has to accept that we all have something and we all have to help one another to see it, recognize it, deal with it, and do not let it affect what we do as leaders and the decisions we make in the workplace and to help one another to be conscious of that. That's part of the inclusion exercise. I think that's important. And I I think that's one of the dangers I see now to avoid, which is that false claim of, uh, I have no bias. Sunil, what's your advice? That advice would differ differ depending on where that person is in the journey as far as diversity and inclusion. If the person's just starting out and maybe their leadership is not on board yet, I would say look around at the everyday circumstances in the court. Is there something that you can address there from a diversity perspective? Our starting point at our court was looking and talking to the various bar associations and asking them, when you come into the court, what's missing there? And the women lawyers were very vocal about the need for there to be lactation rooms. They had a lot of young, uh, younger members. So that's what we focused on. And I was able to make sure we had a lactation room in our court locations. We did a press, a press release on that. We shared that with our administrative office, shared it with our local legal news, and sort of just grew on from that, asking other bar associations, what, what is it that you need? And looking at the numbers and what the impact was and what's the change in quality. If you're more situated in the diversity and inclusion space right now, it's probably a lot easier. This is the time to really go for the big things on the agenda, the things that you know that really need to be changed. Maybe it's some policies or procedures some training for judges, things like that. But definitely having the conversations with others, don't try to go it along, would be one of the biggest pieces of advice I would give. My thanks to Jose, Marsha, Norman, and Hector today for sharing their thoughts on diversity and inclusion. My thanks also to my excellent co-host, Zanelle Brown. My thanks also to you court professionals out there watching this episode. Despite everything that's going on, you continue to keep the courts running. You are truly heroes. Do you have a question or comment about this month's episode? Do you have an example of diversity or inclusion within your court that needs to be shared? Email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. We'll try to include your comment on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This episode will appear both in video and audio format on the NACOM CLA podcast landing page. Until next month, I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for watching. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. 
Today's episode will be available on the NACOM website, on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leaders website, and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily reflect the position of the National Association for Court Management.